Take your Bibles and join us in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 13 to 20 is where we're going to be today. We're continuing our series called All In, All In, and we're looking at a lesson today we're calling Airtight. Airtight is the lesson today from Hebrews chapter 6. This one's going to be hopefully really powerful and a blessing to those who are here. I hope that it is. Before we get to the text, as I usually do, I'm going to ask you a question. Did you ever find someone to not be trustworthy? Do you ever find someone to not be trustworthy for whatever reason? Well, I'm going to give you my top 10 least trustworthy people, okay? <laughs> Humor me, even if these aren't funny. Uh, top 10 least trustworthy people, okay? And hopefully you guys haven't crossed paths with any of these people, but maybe you have. Uh, number one, least trustworthy person, a mechanic who smells like bath and body works. It's not a good idea. You want your mechanic to smell like car things, right? Grease and fuel and other car smells. I don't know what that would be. If he smells like Bath and Body Works, that's probably not a good thing. Uh, number two, least trustworthy person. A doctor who says, hmm, I'm not sure. Let's Google it. Uh, we don't need you for that, doctor. That's probably not a good idea. How about this one? A barista who yells out, he wants something called a latte? Um... I was that barista, <laughs> unfortunately. You guys have heard that story before. Number four, a least trustworthy person, a marriage counselor who flirts with your spouse. Ooh, that's a bad idea right there. You should probably get out of there. Number five, least trustworthy person, an investment banker who tells you that pyramid schemes are pretty effective. <laughs> that's not a good idea. They aren't. Um, number six, least trustworthy person, a waitress you recently dumped on Valentine's Day. Ooh, probably going to get some spit in that drink. Um, how about this one? Number seven, a plumber who refers to pipes as curvy things. I think we had that plumber actually come to our house. Curvy things. That's, that's what I refer to him as. I think the curvy thing is plugged. Uh, number eight, <laughs> a pastor who uses air quotes every time he says the word sin. Now, Lisa has said I use a lot of air quotes, but I don't think I use it that way, hopefully. That's not a good idea. <laughs> Sin. Wait, what? There's some chatter going on in my hearing. Oh, anyways. Okay, number nine, least trustworthy person, a pilot who can't stop yawning while speaking on the intercom. Ooh, get him some Red Bull, some coffee really quick. And number ten, least trustworthy person, a nanny who asks you, can you please not do a back background check on me? Probably don't hire her. Well, here's number 11, and we're going to lead into our lesson today. Uh, least trustworthy person would, would be a God who breaks, breaks his promises. A God who breaks his promises. And hopefully you know by now our God does not break his promises, and that's the point of today's lesson. Join me in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 13 to 20, as we look at our lesson today called Airtight airtight. And we're going to look at verses 13 to 20 of Hebrews 6, so follow along in the Word of God with me. In verse 13, the writer of Hebrews says this. He says, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, patiently, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. For when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, 
so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Airtight is our lesson today. Airtight. I wonder if you know what the phrase airtight means. There's actually two definitions. Airtight, the first one is what you'd probably expect it. No air can pass through. That's what it means. If it's something is airtight, it means no air can pass through. It's kind of like what you have with a refrigerator. That's why you store things in there to keep it fresh, because no air can get through your refrigerator. It's airtight. But there's a second definition that we're going to use today about the word airtight. It means this. Having no weaknesses or being unassailable. Having no weaknesses or being unassailable. I hope by now that you all know that our God is airtight. He has no weaknesses whatsoever. He is unassailable. No one can attack him. No one can defeat him. The Almighty God is absolutely not vulnerable in any way at all. He has no vulnerabilities. Now, this does not mean that God doesn't have emotions like we do. The reason we have emotions is because our God is that way. It means God grieves and feels hurt that way. He absolutely does, because the scripture point blank says that our God does. In Genesis 6-6, if you remember in the days of Noah, God regretted that he made mankind upon the earth. That's what it says. And it says it grieved him to his heart. That's an interesting thing to know about our God. It doesn't mean I understand the complexity of having no weaknesses but feeling grief and pain, but I believe every word of God, and so should you. What I believe the scriptures claim in reference to God being unassailable is that he cannot be tricked. He cannot be wounded. Our God can never, ever be defeated. His character and his sovereignty are airtight. Now, you and I would have better success trying to punch our way through an iron wall than we would trying to trick, wound, or defeat Jehovah. He's airtight. This also does not mean that Jesus didn't experience weakness while upon the earth. He did. He absolutely did. Even though Jesus, too, is unassailable. He has no weaknesses in his character at all. But we know what Jesus did. He took on flesh. And when he took on flesh, he became just as we are, yet without sin. So Jesus, for a season, experienced weakness and vulnerabilities by laying aside his godlike qualities in heaven and coming to earth for a time, for a season. So Jesus in his flesh was not unassailable. He was wounded. He was defamed. He was blasphemed. He was doubted, mocked, conspired against, struck, spit on, tortured, and crucified. All for us, wasn't he? That's what we celebrate here. But we also know that Jesus is God, isn't he? He's God. His character and his godly attributes, like God the Father, are, were, and remain forever entirely airtight. No one can do anything to Jesus that wasn't a part of God's sovereign plan. Now, aren't you glad that God is unassailable? No weaknesses, no vulnerabilities, airtight. 
And we probably know that by now, that God is incapable of suffering defeat. He cannot suffer defeat. He's going to defeat all of his enemies sooner or later. God is going to be undefeated for all of eternity. Aren't you glad you're on his team? So why are we having a lesson on being airtight if we already know and agree that God is airtight? Well, our recent lessons on being airtight, excuse me, on being all in, has brought us to the doorstep of God's promises. And as we learned that God's promises have one condition to them. They have one condition, obedience to his commandments. That's the one condition to receiving all of God's promises. If that one condition is met, then all of God's promises, and there are many of those, are yes and amen for all Christians. But even though God is airtight, his promises could be a different thing, right? Of course we know God cannot be wounded or defeated, but perhaps the things he promises to us could be. The very fact that there's a condition to these promises must mean that God's promises are subject to change based on many variables. God's promises certainly can't be airtight as well, can they? And if God's promises are not airtight, then what business do we have giving him our entire lives? Well, this is exactly what we want to explore today because God's promises are the foundation for our hope. We put our entire soul on the fact that God will keep his promise. If God's promises are not airtight, what business do we have building our entire lives upon him and his promises? Perhaps God will let us down just like everyone else does. Has anyone ever let you down? It's a silly question. As an example or illustration of this, I was driving in my car the other day, and uh, I was pulling onto the road that connects to our road. And, and as I drive, and I often take this route, I like to put my turn signal on nice and early so that the cars that are pulling out of that road know that I'm turning, and they, they're free to come out if they can. Because I'm pulling before they come out. They're turning left, and I'm pulling in before them. So I did that on this particular day. I put my turn signal on several, several hundred feet before I got to the road, and, and there was a guy turning out, and I noticed that he didn't turn out or didn't pull out until my car actually began turning. And maybe you guys do some of that as well. And I wondered in the moment, why was that? I had my turn signal on for several hundred feet, and then it dawned on me there was only a couple reasons why that would happen. Number one is he didn't notice. He didn't notice my turn signal, and he just didn't see it. Number two, which I believe is more likely, he didn't trust it. He didn't trust my turn signal because probably like many of you, you have trusted turn signals and this person didn't end up, end up turning, right? And there was almost a collision. And I thought about that going, man, he's, he, that person had been let down before by people with turn signals. <laughs> and that's kind of an illustration of what it means to be let down. Something that you expect to happen, but you think it's not going to happen because it hasn't happened in the past. See, if God's promises are not airtight, then following God, following the Lord is a gamble. It's a gamble. Now, in this really powerful passage from Hebrews chapter 6, the writer of Hebrews, who we don't know who it is, it might be Paul, it might be someone else, he begins speaking about the promises, excuse me, the promises of God. I have to take a drink. Namely, talking about the promises to Abraham. Now, in the, right, in the passage right before ours, the writer of Hebrews had just exhorted his readers to endurance. Endurance in the faith. If you remember Pastor Mel's lesson from last week, 
It was about a continuing commitment. The writer of Hebrews had just exhorted his readers to that. To not give up. To not abandon the faith. It will pay off if they remain steadfast and finish their race. Stay the course, is what he's saying. And it's almost like the writer of Hebrews knew that the thoughts of his readers were going to be at this moment. Sure, God is unassailable. God is. But what if his promises fail? What if we end up with nothing after our sacrifice and commitment to him in this really hard path? If we sacrifice for the Lord and his promises don't hold true, we're left with nothing in this life and the next. We would have just sacrificed our life for nothing in vain. So perhaps it's better to hedge our bets and not go all in because what if God's promises don't hold true? If it's real one day, God will notice that we, gave, we had some faith and he'll let us into the kingdom. And if it's not real, then we didn't waste our lives for nothing and we still enjoyed some pleasures from this world. I believe that's a very feasible thought that people have according to Christianity. I will give God something just in case, but I don't want to give him everything just in case his promises are not real and he doesn't hold true. So the writer of Hebrews believed it was necessary to expound on the nature of God and his promises. Look what he says in verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. Now this is a strange thing to hear for those who had just studied the book of James. If you remember the book of James, James forbade all swearing and oath-taking, didn't he? He said all oath-taking and all swearing is evil. It's wrong. And then Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount said the same thing. He forbade swearing and the taking of oaths. So if all swearing and all oath-taking is wrong, what's going on here? Is God playing by a different set of rules than he expects from us? And the answer to that question is yes and no. You see, the Lord forbade us from swearing because anything by which we swear by does not belong to us. Notice the language in Matthew 5 when Jesus says this. He says, but I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is, it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Do you notice that? Nothing belongs to us. Nothing. This is an important doctrine that nothing you have belongs to you. Nothing. But everything belongs to God. Everything does. And he alone has the right to make oaths and swear by anything he wants to simply because of this one fact. It's all his. Everything belongs to God. And because he has absolute authority over everything that exists. That's why it's different. So when God swears, and we're not talking about the profanity, four-letter word, taking the Lord's name in vain. That's not what we're talking about today. We're talking about, I swear by something. And when God makes oaths, he's not committing any wrong whatsoever. So the commandment to not swear and to not make oaths applies only to those who have no authority over the things that they're swearing by. Therefore, the commandment to, it applies to every single person except God because everything is owned by God. Everything. You and I, we don't own anything. You know that, right? Everything we have is on loan from God. And I mean everything. I mean your bodies. 
I mean your families. I mean your money. I mean your time. I mean your talents. Everything you have is not yours. You are simply a steward, a manager over what God has loaned to you. It's like when someone loans you something, right? Do you have right to use that thing any way you desire and do with it whatever you want with that thing? And the answer is no. You should respect the thing and the owner of the person that owns that thing and use it carefully. Or that person might be upset with you because it's actually theirs. So when you and I swear by things and when we make oaths, we do evil because we're taking ownership and stealing something that belongs to another, to God alone. But everything belongs to God. Everything. So when God swears and makes an oath, he is acting completely righteously. And the writer of Hebrews says that God sealed of his promise to Abraham and made it airtight by swearing on his own name. Wow. Wow. And the reason God did this is because there is literally no one greater by whom to swear by. God is the absolute peak of value, worth, and supremacy. In fact, that's the exact reason people swear by God's name, right? Because there's no one greater Literally, no one greater to, to swear by. And we want people to believe us. So we take the highest, the greatest name there is, and we swear by that name because we want people to believe us. But when we do it, that's evil. The problem with us swearing and us making oaths is that we don't have the right to God's name. I don't own God's name. I don't have the right to use God's name any way I want. That's what's called blasphemy or the taking of God's name in vain. But God can use his name any way he desires. And it's perfectly righteous when he does it. And I'm going to say this as well. If God swears by his own name, think about this. It must be for a very, very good reason. That's a very serious thing to do. So God swore to Abraham on his own name that his promise to Abraham through Isaac, his son, would indeed come to pass. If you remember, God promised Abraham that he would be the father of a great nation with millions and perhaps billions of descendants. Now, this particular promise was amazing because when God made it to Abraham and Sarah, they didn't even have one child, let alone a plethora of descendants. They were childless. Sarah was barren. She didn't have any children. And God made a promise that Abraham would be the father of a great nation with millions and perhaps billions of descendants. That's an amazing promise when you're childless. And here in our passage today, we find the promise God gave to Abraham. He said this, he said, Surely, surely I will bless you and multiply you, Abraham. And because God's promises are airtight, it cannot be broken, cannot be thwarted. This promise, according to the biblical account, took shape one day. When Sarah was 90 years old, she found out she was having a child. God kept his promise. Now, I want, ladies, I want you to imagine trying to wait that long for God's promise to be fulfilled in your life, okay? You finally become pregnant when you're 90. 90, okay? That's a long time to wait. That's a long time to wait. I can only imagine the process of that with Sarah and Abraham. But Sarah did get pregnant. She did. Because God can't lie. He cannot lie. And he cannot break a promise by which he made now, Sarah, no doubt, needed patience for this process, right? I mean, that's obvious. And even in her passage today, says that Abraham, too, needed patience for this process. 
Now, as we've said before, this is fitting for my family right now because in two days, Lord permitting, little Thurmond Walker is going to be born to us. And ladies, I don't need to tell you or I don't need to tell my wife that patience is needed in waiting for a baby to be born. Ask my wife. The biggest struggle she has right now is carrying a baby inside of her. We don't want a C-section, but get that baby out. <laughs> I think Janine got a little excited to find out Thurman was going to be born sooner than later, even though it's a C-section. But even fathers have their own version of waiting and staying patient, don't they? It's called, When Will My Wife's Mood Swings and Weird Cravings Come to an End? I'm teasing. I just got in the doghouse, didn't I? <laughs> but Abraham and Sarah's patience was not the typical nine-month process of waiting for their baby to be born. That's not what we're talking about. Their process of waiting was per perhaps 50 to 70 years of waiting to conceive, to get pregnant, to find out that a baby was on its way. And you know the story. Abraham and Sarah did get the news that Sarah had conceived and baby Isaac was on their way on its way to them. Or as our passage so simply states, and thus Abraham and Sarah, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. Now that's not an ultrasound of Isaac. I don't think there's one that exists. That is baby Thurmond for you all. That's our baby that is to come. He's going to look better than that, I promise. But they found out they were going to have a baby, that God kept his promise. And this process, we know this process for Abraham and Sarah was less than perfect, right? They had their moments of weakness and sin along the way of waiting for this baby. But God kept, their, kept his promise in spite of their failings. Sarah was 90 years old, and her timing probably was not the same as God's. Isn't that clear to say? But the scriptures tell us, God will keep his promise. They never tell us when God will keep his promise. They possibly, very likely, could be on a totally different timetable than ours. But he will keep his promises because God's promises are airtight. They can never be broken. Now, Abraham and Sarah, they bore Isaac, and their blessed descendant finally arrived. And if that's how their story ended, that's kind of a fairy tale ending. Isaac finally comes, and he's normally born without any hiccups. He grows up, and he becomes the descendant of many other descendants. That would be a sort of a fairy tale ending. But as we know, Abraham was going to be tested again with the very promises of God. Because only a few years later, God came to Abraham and commanded that Abraham sacrifice his only son unto the Lord. Now, we know the story. We know how it ends. We have the benefit of hindsight. But imagine hearing that. You waited several decades for God to keep his promise to you. And then as soon as Isaac is born, only a few years later, after you're 100 years old, Abraham is over 100 at this point, Isaac's born? Didn't Abraham and Sarah prove their patience to God already? Didn't they prove that they believed God and trusted in God by this point? Well, apparently God didn't think so. Not enough, because God's test to Abraham was going to greatly increase in difficulty. But the test was going to be the same in practicality as waiting for Isaac to be born. It was going to be believe and trust that God will keep his promises, that his promises are airtight. Now, logic tells us, logic speaks if Isaac dies, 
God's promises are not airtight, right? If Isaac lives, then yes, God is keeping his promises. But if Isaac dies, it all goes away. So either maybe Abraham misheard God's commandment, or maybe God's commandments or promises, excuse me, are not airtight. That's what logic would say. And we know the story. Abraham passed the test, didn't he? He said, okay, God. He took his only son, the son of promise, and he bound him and laid him on the wood on top of the altar, and he raised his knife in the air, ready to drop it on his son and obey the commandment of the Lord. Now, do you remember the condition to God's promises that we spoke about two weeks ago? Abraham kept the commandment of the Lord. And as we study from John 15 and a few other passages, there's a beautiful synchronicity between God keeping his promises and us keeping his commandments. Notice what it says. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. You see, God's promises and our keeping of his commandments are supposed to hold hands. They're a team. Now, in the case for waiting, Isaac, waiting for Isaac to be born, both Abraham and Sarah made some colossal mistakes along the way. They did. It's honest. And those were sinful things that happened. So it's possible that God will keep his promises in spite of our lack of obedience and faithfulness. Isn't it true? It's possible. But would anyone ever use the story of Abraham and Sarah to say that we can slide out of obedience to God and still find God's promises? Would anyone actually do that? No one in their right mind would say that. Because we know God has specifically stated over and over again that we are to keep his commandments if we want his promises to be fulfilled in our lives. So we need to be careful how we manipulate the word of God and make it to our own liking, okay? This is what the word of God says. There is a togetherness, a unity between us keeping his commandments and God keeping his promises. They're supposed to work together to accomplish God's will in our lives. So don't separate them, okay? That's very dangerous to do so. And this time, in our second example, God commanded Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. Abraham said, I will. And the story worked out exactly like it should. God, excuse me, God kept his promise to Abraham and Abraham kept the commandment of the Lord. Abraham passed the test and Isaac was spared death. He did not have to die. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Isaac didn't die. Isaac was never going to die. Abraham kept his commandment. God kept his promise. And right there we have the synchronicity between the two. Now this is one of the most remarkable proofs of God's promises being airtight. Okay? Because it looked bleak. We've heard that story so many times. We know what happens and we can rehearse it in our mind. But that story for Abraham looked bleak. He had the knife raised in the air, ready to drop it on his son. It looked like God's promises were not going to be kept. That perhaps even God wasn't trustworthy. But just at the 11th hour, just like when Sarah conceived Isaac, God kept his promise and proved that just like his nature and his character, his promises are airtight. Airtight. But if the story of Abraham is not enough proof of God's promises being airtight, the writer of Hebrews is going to seek to cement this belief by pure doctrine. So we're going to have experience and doctrine come together 
to convince us the airtightness of God's promises. Listen to what he says. Verse 16, for people swear by something greater than themselves, and in their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable nature of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, God should not have to prove himself to us any further than he already has. I believe we all have a lengthy resume of God's promises being airtight in our lives. In fact, if you sat down today and wrote out the resume of God's love in your life, you would be there a while. You might get carpal tunnel syndrome. You'd be there so long. Because God has a lengthy resume of keeping his promises and loving us in our lives. Doesn't he? A lengthy resume. See, but God wants to cement this in our minds today. It's all a part of the process of being all in for Jesus. But the writer of Hebrews tells us why God's promises are airtight. Because God placed an oath on top of his promise. Isn't that interesting? And we already discussed how this is perfectly righteous for God to do so. When you're God and you own everything, it's perfectly righteous to make a promise and then put an oath on top of that promise. So God made a promise. Guys, God made a promise. That is a powerful statement on its own. God promised you something. That something would take place. Now that means God's word is on the line. God's word is now on the line. That is huge. When God makes a promise, that is a big, big deal. His word and his name are now on the line. But the writer of Hebrews says that God didn't stop there. He placed an oath on top of his promise because he wanted to convince us that his word is true. Wow. Do you see the nature of our God? Now, God did not have to make a promise at all to us. He simply could have said, I'm God. You're not. Obey me or die. And that would have been perfectly righteous for a God to do so. But God promised that he would love us forever, that he would take care of all of our needs, and that he would be with us every step of the way. Why did God do this? Why did God do this? And it's quite simple why he did this. Because he loves us. Because he loves us. You see, I'm a father and a husband. I do or I try to show love every single day to my wife and my almost seven children. Because my wife, as all wives need, love from their husband. My children, as all children need, love from their father. And it's my pleasure to love them. It is my pleasure to love my family. Because I love my family. I cherish my family. My family is a gift and a blessing to me. And it's a simple truth that we do things to help those we love. Isn't that true? We simply want to help those that we love. And it's also a simple truth that we need help from others. So God did not just command us to do some things. He could have. But he decided to promise us his enduring and faithful love as well. 
And I love that about my God. But the writer of Hebrews says that God went a step further than that because he loves us. He sealed those promises with an oath. And not just any oath. God swore on his own name that he would keep his promises to us. What would cause God to place his entire name and reputation upon something? Something pretty important, right? Now let's go over a few important details that might be obvious. But number one, making promises is a serious business. I hope you don't do that flippantly. Making promises is a serious business, okay? Number two, making oaths is incredibly serious. It's so serious and so weighty, it's beyond our pay grade. We're never supposed to do this because, again, we don't own anything. Nothing is ours. Because if we break an oath, we are now as evil as the devil is evil. And God doesn't want that for us at all. So he says, don't take any oaths. Leave that to God himself. Number three, swearing on the name of God is the most serious thing you could ever do. So making a promise, making an oath, and swearing on the name of God, we are talking about something incredibly important and serious today. Now to make a promise, that's one thing. To make an oath is quite another thing. But to use God's name to seal that oath with is so serious and potentially eternally dangerous unless you are airtight, unless you are unassailable, unless your promises are airtight. In other words, no one can and no one should do this except God himself. But why would God put his entire name and reputation on the line for naturally sinful people? Why would he do that? Why go to that length and that limit to promise me something? Why would God do that? Put his entire name and reputation on the line when I know who I am, he knows who I am. Why am I worthy of that? Why are you worthy of that? This is what the writer says. To show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, that's us, all those who are all in for Jesus, the unchangeable character of his purpose. That's why. Quite simply, God does it to help us. To help us. Because you help those you love. And does God love us? He loves us tremendously. So he wants to help us. He wants to make our job of trusting in him and being all in for Jesus so much easier. Don't you love that about your God? Do you see how much he loves you? He is seeking to make the job of being all in for Jesus easier by going to this degree. And since God did this for us, let us notice what it produces in the soul. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we, who have fled for refuge in Jesus might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. That's why. So that that might take place. We might endure. We might hold fast. We might carry on. God gave his children two securities for his promises. Two. Not one. Two. God cannot break a promise. God cannot break an oath. Did you ever give something an extra level of security? Like when you were little and you shut the door and 
you locked it because you didn't want the monsters to get in, and then you put that chair underneath the door handle just in case the monster had a key. And uh, you, had that, you had that door jammed underneath it just in case for that extra level of security. Or the one that always makes me laugh is the little chain in the hotel. When you lock the door and it's got that really big lock and then you put that little chain at the above. Just in case the bad guy can kick through the lock but the chain, you know, gets in his way. Um, did God need to do this? Did he need to do this? Does God waste anything? Is this wasteful? Does God need to give us an extra level of security for his promises? No, not necessarily. Learning by doctrine and by experience that God will never break his promise should be enough for you and I. It should be enough. But because of God's deep, deep love for us, through Jesus, he sealed those promises even further with another unbreakable protection. God cannot break a promise And God cannot break an oath, especially an oath sealed by his own name. Therefore, God's promises are absolutely and unequivocally airtight. His promises are so airtight that the writer ends his passage by saying this. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, how cool is that statement? Because of God's airtightness, because of his promises being airtight, we have a sure and steadfast anchor for the soul. Isn't that a great term? Soul anchor. I mean, think about that term, soul anchor. Now, the job of that anchor is quite simple, to keep a ship from moving, right? That's why you throw the anchor into the water, because you want the ship to stay put. It keeps it tethered to the ground. And the writer of Hebrews says that we, all those who are all in for Jesus, have an anchor tethering our souls to God. And that anchor for our souls is so sure and so steadfast that the hope of that anchor takes us behind the curtain where Jesus is right now at the very throne of God. Our souls are anchored to God through Jesus at the very throne of God. I mean, think about that for a moment. Does your soul need that? My soul needs that soul anchor. Does yours? I'm guessing it does. Because life is topsy-turvy, right? especially these past year, a year and a half. Look around. Is anything stable anymore? Anything? Is your job stable? Is my job stable? Is your family stable? Are the finances stable? Is the country stable? Is anything stable these days? Do you need a soul anchor? I'm guessing you do, and so do I. Now, the curtain that the writer is referring to was the thing that once kept sinners apart from a holy God. Because of our sinfulness and because of God's holiness, the two didn't mix. If our sinfulness entered into God's holiness, we would die. Plain and simple. God's holiness would kill us. That's how holy he is. He does not entertain sinners or dwell with sinners. So our sinfulness and God's holiness does not mix. It would have killed us. But the writer of Hebrews tells us that because we're all in for Jesus, because we believe in him and we follow him, and because God's promises are airtight, 
we are actually tethered to the one behind the curtain. And the one behind the curtain is the one who made us perfectly righteous in God's eyes. So much so that we know what happened. The curtain of the temple was torn in two. It's gone. We have an eternal covenantal relationship with the Lord of the universe and we are anchored to him for the rest of eternity. Are you thankful for that? Boy, that is an amazing promise. Not only will the Holy One behind the curtain not kill us anymore, not only will the curtain, is the curtain gone forever, but he is the very one tethering our souls to eternal life and to God himself. Are you grasping this today? If you're all in for Jesus, God's promises to you are so airtight, they can literally never be broken. Lest God would become evil, and that's never going to happen in any way, shape, or form. Now, because of these two truths, and because we have a soul anchor that will never allow our souls to be moved away from a loving God, we are supposed to gain confidence. Confidence. If you're all in for Jesus, your soul is anchored today and forever. Now, I hope many of you have read the second half of Romans 8, if not all of Romans. If not, do so today, but I'm going to read a portion of this to you today. And I want you to think about the soul anchor, okay? Listen to the language Paul is saying from the end of Romans 8. In fact, if you can, close your eyes and just listen to this, okay? Think about this soul anchor. In verse 35, Paul says this, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? Right there is what the soul anchor looks like. Nothing, and Paul repeats, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ once we're all in for Jesus. Nothing. The devil has no tool. He has no weapon. He has no army strong enough to remove our soul anchor. We are secure in the love of Christ. And both God's name and God's reputation and his character are on the line meaning nothing can match the strength of our soul anchor. Nothing. So what do we do with this truth today? What do we do with this truth today? What's the point? What's the point of having airtight soul anchor promises from God? Well, I believe there's four things we need to gain from this before we close. Number one, quite simply, do not fear. And I'm going to say ever. Do never fear. The only thing we have to fear in this Christian life is stepping away from the one whose holiness and guarding us. Otherwise, we have nothing to fear. Nothing. 
Think about that. Nothing can harm us that isn't a part of God's amazing promises and will for our lives. Nothing. Everything is given to us, even trials, to make us stronger, richer, and better. Everything God gives us is to make us better. In fact, if we understand this, we should obey the Lord with courage. Something that's kind of lost today. No one really has courage anymore. Because your soul is anchored to God through Jesus. Nothing can change that truth. Nothing. With the exception of total abandonment of the Christian path. We are more than conquerors through Christ. Obey him with courage. The very same courage that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had before the fiery furnace. Was that courageous? Wow. Before Daniel, before the face of the lion's den. David, before the face of Goliath. Obedience with courage, because we have nothing to fear. And let us remember that we are heirs, co-heirs of eternal life with God in his glorious eternal kingdom. God's kingdom belongs to you. It belongs to me because we're in Jesus. If that doesn't give us confidence in this life, then there is no such thing as confidence. It doesn't exist. If those two statements, the fact that we are anchored to God through Jesus Christ and the fact that the kingdom is ours, promised by God, if that doesn't give us confidence, there is no such thing as confidence. But we also need to remember that everything we are given is a gift from God. Nothing we have, we've earned on our own. Everything was given to us as a gift. Therefore, also remain humble. Courage, confidence, and humility is an unbeatable trio. If you have those three things, you will never lose. Courage in your Lord, confidence in his promises, and humility in the understanding that everything is on loan and everything belongs to God. That's the first thing. Number two, thing the soul anchor should do for us is sacrificial love. Sacrificial love. Now, work through this with me for a moment. If we're heirs of the kingdom of God, I mean, think about that. If we're heirs to God's kingdom, the kingdom belongs to me and to you. If we're anchored to the king of the kingdom, if we're literally immortal, because we are, and if God has promised to take care of every single need we have in this life, here's the question. What else do we need from the world? If we have all of that from God and it's promised and secure by his double layer of protection, what else do we need from the world? And the quite simple but profound answer is nothing. We need nothing from the world. We are so rich in heaven and now in Christ that nothing from this world could possibly make us richer than we already are. Nothing. And therefore, everything we have been given, because we have been given to us, it's a gift, can be sacrificed to serve our Lord and to serve others with. In fact, I'm going to say that's the entire point of everything God has given us. To love him and to love others. God's promise is being airtight is so that we can love others with reckless abandon. We don't have to hold back at all. We have everything we need in Christ well beyond and we have it for the rest of eternity. Therefore, everything we have, we can give it away to those who are in need. Have you given your life away to Christ yet? Have you given your life away to your neighbor yet? That's the whole point of Christianity. You're rich. You're an heir of the kingdom of God. You have a soul anchor. Give your life away to the Lord and away to others. 
Number three, we've been talking a lot about this one, and it's not just because we're pastors. It's because the Word of God tells us how crucial this is, commitment to your church. As Pastor Mel reminded us last week, the church is God's plan for our success, for our maturity, and for the building up of his kingdom. If you and I don't commit and don't invest in Christ's church, then we don't have any idea what God's promises are all about. Because all of God's promises are found inside the church. Every single one. To accept God's promises and to be lukewarm about his church is an impossibility. You cannot take God's promises and reject his church. The church was designed to work when all the members commit to it, when the church is one, and it was meant to suffer when we don't. Is Wyoming Valley Church suffering today? Is it limping along? Are you committed and invested into Wyoming Valley Church? Are you the reason Wyoming Valley Church might be limping along? If you're not committed and not invested to Christ Church, quite simply, you're harming Christ Church, his most cherished possession. And you're missing out on all of God's wonderful promises. And I'll say this even, your soul is not yet anchored. If you have not committed to the Church of Christ, your soul is not yet anchored because they're a package deal. You don't take the soul anchor and go live your life somewhere else. You do it inside the church. You need the church. The church needs you, and Jesus is only found inside the church. The promises, the soul anchor, and Jesus are inside the church. If you need those three things, you better get in the church immediately. Number four, never ever step away from Jesus. You see, Jesus, he's our connection to the airtight God. Jesus is our connection to God's airtight promises. Jesus is. The only way we lose in this life is to step away from Jesus or to disobey his commandments. Now let us recall the condition to these airtight promises. It's quite simple. If you want to be all in for Jesus, you will obey his commandments. And Jesus is your anchor. Why would you ever step away from your anchor? Or as Jesus so eloquently states in John 15, 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Can I say that one more time? Because it's one of my favorite verses. I am the vine, you are the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If we take this lesson to heart today and we insert the truths of it into our lives, then these airtight promises will literally change the way we live every single day. I'm banking on it because it's changed my life. I'm telling you from experience. Once I understand how airtight God is and his promises are, and then I commit myself to that God, it has changed my life in every way, shape, and form. Now imagine what you could do for a moment with immortality. There's a lot of superhero movies around today, right? What could you actually do with immortality? What could you do with eternal wealth that never diminished and never deteriorated and never depleted? What would you do with eternal security with God's double layer security? 
And what would you do with every single provision you need in your Christian journey? What if you had all that? And you do. Would it change your life? Would you live courageous and confident and obedient for your Lord? Do you have a relationship with God through Jesus today? Do you have that? See, his first promise that he ever gave us was that he would save us and forgive us from our sins if we gave our life to Jesus. Do you have that relationship yet? Are your sins forgiven? And are you saved from those sins right now? Because that's God's first promise to you. I will save you. I will forgive you. I will make you brand new. And I will bring you into my kingdom. I hope that you do. Christ follower, your God is airtight. Airtight. His promises are airtight. His, your soul is anchored to the king of the kingdom of God. If you haven't already, and we hope that you have, go all in for Jesus. All in. Go all in for his commandments. Go all in for the will of God, and they're all found in the Holy Scriptures. Go all in if you haven't yet. And may you and I become a fierce and confident soldier for Jehovah from this very moment on. Because God is airtight. His promises are airtight. His promises are sure and steadfast anchor for the soul. Can we pray? Father, I do thank you for the message of your airtight promises today. Where else would we turn? To whom would we go, Father, besides you? You've proven your love so many times. You've put your name on the line. You've sealed it with an oath. You've told us today that there is nothing that can remove us from the love of Christ. And it's all so that we finally get the point and we go all in for Jesus. We say yes to your will. We give our life away to the king and the kingdom that is anchoring our soul behind the curtain today. Father, thank you for this message today. I pray for the souls in this room. I don't know where they are in their faith with you, but I pray for those who don't have faith in you that they would turn to Jesus today. I pray for those who are sitting on the sidelines or have one foot in and one foot out from the church that you would finally prove to them how great it is to be with you and your promises. Wyoming Valley Church needs everyone to get on board, and I pray that you would impress this upon the souls here. Maybe a renewed commitment or a first-time commitment would happen today that we would say, boy, spring of 2021 is when I realized that my soul is anchored to Jesus and I gave my life to him. Father, touch the souls in this room and do it for your own sake, for your own glory. And we thank you and praise you for the message. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.